11 through 12. As you're turning, that song that we just sang, many of you know this, but I just want to share it with you. You notice it's added too, that there's a refrain that's added in the modern version. Uh, Dave and I were talking about it. I think Chris Tomlin wrote that not too many years ago. But the basic song comes from John Newton, who many of you might know this. And if you don't, I ask you to think about purchasing the book Amazing Grace, um, written not long ago, just a few years ago, a small book about the life of William Wilberforce. And it also ties into the song Amazing Grace. Some of you may have seen the movie. John Newton was a pastor in England. And um, he, as a young man, left home, um, despised the church, despised his father. He went into the slave trade. He worked as a slave trader on uh, boats going to Africa and bringing slaves back into the British Empire, into England to be sold. God saved him while he was on those ships making those voyages. It's a pretty amazing story how he even survived. Several times he almost died. He was saved and then so miraculously saved that he began to preach and was given a local church. One of his many uh, disciples, one of the guys he brought up in the faith was a man named William Wilberforce. And through the influence of John Newton's preaching and teaching and life, William Wilberforce gave his life to Parliament. His entire career hinged on basically one piece of legislation that it took until he was an old man to see it passed. And that was legislation that outlawed the trade of slaves in the British Empire. A slave trader turned to a gospel preacher who then, through his preaching and his life, brought an end, we could say, in some ways, to the trade of slaves, the trade of human beings into trafficking. The gospel is powerful. It's not just powerful in spiritual ways. It transforms culture. It changes the world. So, I don't know um, if this is true or not, but this is the the story that's been passed down. When he wrote the words and he began to put them together, the song tune in his mind came, again, not historically confirmed, but we think might have very possibly come through that slave trade. See, the slaves were singing songs constantly to keep those that were in the hole of the ships. And it was a tune that he picked up there that became a tune used uh, in this much later to put the words of Amazing Grace together. So it's just a beautiful story of how the gospel transforms, how it changes. It doesn't just change little parts of our life. It totally transforms us and culture into a new creation. It's a beautiful thing. And so uh, if you haven't uh, seen that, if you heard the song and didn't know the story, I just challenge you to study and know where that song comes from. It's a beautiful story. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father the son in whom He delights. I had the experience this past week that I've had Many times in my life, and some of you shared this experience. Let me just tell you the surroundings. I'm in Walmart, a place I'm forced to go 
not a place I enjoy going. Okay? But it's a necessity in our world that we go to Walmart, right? So we think. They've trained us well. <laughs> so I'm standing in line. I'm not looking at the tabloids. I'm trying not to. They're appealing as they are, the headlines. I'm just kind of standing there, looking around. There is a mom in front of me who has two small children. These children are challenging. That's obvious. The reason it's obvious is because mom has told the one not to open the candy until they get in the car at least eight times since I've been behind them in line. Very short time. The other one is on the front of the buggy. He has made it the mission of his life to climb up onto the top of the back of that buggy and jump off. Okay? Mom's trying to unload the groceries, keep this one from eating the candy. I almost tapped her on the shoulder and said, it'll be all right. Just let him eat the candy. Pay. Get out of my way, you know? And the other one is playing Olympic contests off the front of the buggy. The mom's embarrassed. You been there? You've seen it. You might admit, if I catch you at a good moment, you've been there. Like it's you and your kids doing it, right? And then it happens. Mom reached the breaking point. Okay? And she lets out a scream. It's, it's not a corrective scream. It's kind of a guttural panic, I'm going to kill something or someone scream. Right? This is a scream that comes out of people just before war begins. <laughs> We're all familiar with that scream, right? And I, and, I, and I immediately go into pastoral mode. I tell the lady, I said, oh, oh ma'am, can I help you with your groceries? That looks heavy, let me help you. You know, I did not offer to buy her things, but I was ready to buy her things, right? Um, I mean, it was one of those moments. She lets out a scream. They get done, they get the buggy, they're headed with the buggy, and the little kid that was trying to jump off, now his foot slips. Mom runs him up, runs up on him, you know, with the buggy, right? No mercy comes from this mother because she's at the end of her rope. She snatches the buggy back. The other kid's getting whiplash now. You know, it's a small kid up in the front. You women are laughing because you've been there, right? I mean, we all have. That moment where anger, frustration, embarrassment, wondering have we wasted our lives trying to raise these children, it's all mixing in there. It's a bad potion. Mom snatches this little one up. He's screaming, you know. There's no ER visit for him. Mom snatches him up and whacks him, like rearrange the spine kind of whack. And I'm now thinking, there's cameras in here. <laughs> DHR doesn't approve of what you're doing right now, right? We've got in a bad habit of calling that discipline. That's not discipline. That causes us to misunderstand what God's doing in our life when he says what he says in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Don't despise the discipline of a father, nor of the Lord. What happened right there was not discipline. There's a lot of labels for it. Not, I'm not judging. I've had the same emotions happening inside of me. Okay, But that's not discipline. 
Let me tell you something else that, that, that doesn't happen very often. Some of it should happen more often. Our churches have become so fragmented that we can't imagine this happening nowadays. But my granddad's churches were always these small country churches. And they rarely had nursery facilities. You know where all the little kids went? Right here. I don't know who came up with that idea, but that wasn't a great idea. But every country church just about he preached in through the 80s, the ones I can remember, they had a blanket. All the little kids came and sat on the blanket during church. Okay, right up front. Parents sat in their seats. I don't know who devised this weird method of child care. They're sitting up here. My granddad would be preaching. I did not ever see this take place because by my time they were reforming this method. Okay? But I am told that in the early years of his preaching, he would call children down from the pulpit on the blanket. He would then instruct their parents to come get them and take them out for discipline, which the parent did, and then usually, I'm told, brought them back and put them down here sobbing while he's preaching. This is an amazing thing to me. It doesn't happen here. As you can tell, we like nursery, and we don't force you to use it, but it's there if you want to use it. We're not putting blankets down here. One time, one time, my aunt was sitting on the blanket, and she got out of hand. There were visitors there that day. Well, my granddad couldn't call her parents to come down and get her and discipline her. So, in the middle of his sermon, he stopped, walked off the stage, grabbed her up, spanked her, and put her back down on the blanket. He went back in the pulpit and continued preaching. Yeah, some of your faces, that was the visitor's face. And the next words out of his mouth were, because he noticed, oh no, they don't know that's my kid. That's my child. I'd spank my child. But if you're not here and your child's on this blanket and needs it, I will spank them too. <laughs> now, it's kind of a funny story, but there was a day when in the church and in the community, you did have to wait to get home to get a spanking. Because your Sunday school teacher might spank you or discipline you or your neighbor's parents down the street might. And then you hope they didn't tell your parents because then you get another one. Yeah, Rod's been there. I've been there. I know. There's something there, though, because it separates what was going on in Walmart and what's going on in the story that I described with my granddad. And the difference is love and relationship. Love expressed in relationship. The reason corporal punishment becomes abusive is because there is no relationship. If, I'll just tell you, you dads and mothers, but dads, if you're spanking your children out of anything but respect, love, care, concern, and true discipline, you are abusing your children. They will despise it, and they will learn to despise you. And when they get old enough, that won't work anymore. Because little Johnny will be big enough that you won't be able to pull the belt out and scare him. God doesn't operate that way. Our passage says that God disciplines those that he loves. Did you see that in the text when I read it? It is a sign of God's love if he is disciplining you. It is a sign of a relationship which he already has with you that he is now disciplining you. God doesn't discipline 
those outside of his family. He disciplined those that are inside of his family. He pours out his wrath and his judgment on those outside his family. That's called punishment. Children of God never receive punishment. They receive discipline. It's a very different concept. One is intended to inflict pain and suffering because of the horrendousness of the offense. And the other is intended to bring the person whom we love into submission and following the leadership of the Father. There's a big difference in those two. Let's look at our text and see just how the writer of Proverbs lays this out for us. Remember last week, if you weren't here, here's what we learned. That we weren't to despise or forget the teaching of our Father. We were to keep those things close to us because they were instructive throughout our lives. Leads us down to verses 5 through 6, the most famous part of this passage, which is the gospel. Trust in the Lord. Lean on the Lord. Treasure the Lord with all your heart and do not lean or trust or treasure your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make, your, your, make straight your paths. So those verses are gospel verses. I talked about that last week. That is foundational to our relationship with the Father in heaven. Trusting in the Lord. Treasuring the Lord. Treasuring Christ means that we are part of the family of God. No one outside the family of God treasures Christ. Is that clear? If you really truly call Christ your treasure, you belong to God. It's impossible to treasure Christ outside of the Father's love and family. Alright? So, we see these gospel verses. And I told you there were some practical things that follow in verses 9 and 10 that teach us that we are treasuring Christ. 9 and 10 say, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Remember I said last week, if you are a gospel-saturated, Christ-treasuring individual, you will give to the Lord. If you're not giving of your time, of your energy, of your resources, of your money, there's a problem. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say you can't be a Christian, but I'm going to say if you are one, you're in dear and dire straight. You need help. You're in trouble. Your life is not ordered according to the gospel. The gospel makes us giving people. If you meet someone who is a Grinch, if you meet an Ebenezer Scrooge, the problem is not personality. The problem is they've never been infected with a life-overflowing goodness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you meet kind people, it's not personality. When you meet truly kind, loving, sacrificial, giving people, something has changed them. That's not natural to humanity. We talked about that last week. An external evidence of the gospel is your giving of yourself, of your time, of your energy, of your resources. A second external proof of the gospel in your life 
is the discipline of the Lord. If you think back, I don't know when the last time God disciplined me is. If you think back and say, I don't even know when that happened last. There's a problem in your life. That's not a good thing. Say, what? It's not good? No. Why? Because God disciplines all of those that he loves. Did you see that in our text? Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't be weary of his reproof. Don't turn away from it. Don't throw it aside. Don't hate it. Don't grow tired of it. For the Lord reproves, brings that person to repentance whom he loves. If you don't find yourself regularly brought to repentance, it's a sign that God doesn't love you. Repentance is not a one-time event, but it's the life of a Christian. There is not a day that as I mature in Christ that I go by that day and go get to the end of that thing. Man, I didn't sin today. Boy, I'm doing good. The older I get in the faith, the closer I walk to His Word, the more I have fellowship with Him in prayer and in meditation, the more I realize I am a sinner. In my flesh, in my natural being, man, I am rotten. The sign of maturity is not a lack of sin. That's where John Wesley missed it. He thought that was a sign of, of maturing faith. The sign of maturity is the recognition that outside of Christ, you are nothing but sin. And outside His daily, moment-by-moment control, you can do nothing that pleases God. That's maturity. And that's the discipline of the Lord. Let me give you some examples, some practical examples that might help you. What keeps you, what keeps you from breaking your marriage vows with your spouse? I'm talking about the kind of not breaking the vow, not mentally, not verbally, not physically. What keeps you from that? What keeps your eye from lingering on that really good-looking person of the opposite sex when you've given your heart and your soul to your husband or your wife? What keeps you from that? Well, it could be a lot of things, right? Your wife's strong right hand. Yeah? The fact that your husband's an extremely jealous person. But ultimately for a Christian, is it not that you know your Father in Heaven sees you? I mean, at the bottom of the line, at the end of the day, what keeps... Because, look, Really smart people can hide really devious things for a long time. If you just want to get down to the brass tacks, you can't control what your spouse does when they're gone from you 12 hours a day. You may think you can. You can't. They're going to do what they're going to do. So what keeps them from doing what they're going to do? The discipline of the Lord. The fact that if I do this, I know that I have broken fellowship in the in very end of the day, not only with my wife, but with my Lord. When I'm done lusting after, thinking about, lingering on that look, or acting out on it, I know, though I am his child, I'm now separated from him. I'm going to feel that, the weight of that, that burden. 
Let's think of a less dramatic one, right? Because, you know, you're saying, well, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. What keeps you, what minds your tongue when you're disciplining your children? A lot of things, right? I mean, ultimately, parents, believe it or not, kids, parents don't want you to hate them. Parents really want you to grow up and love them. I mean, even bad parents, even, even, even parents that just have broken all the rules, if you get them away from the heat of the moment, they will say, I don't want my kid to hate me. Okay, so, yeah, that's there. We don't want our kid to like us in the end. We want them to grow up and be productive members of society. That's there. But ultimately, what keeps me most of the time from coming down and hammering my children what causes me to extend grace to them is the fact that God has forgiven me and extended grace to me. And so the discipline of the Lord brings me to a point of minding my tongue, watching my temper, causing me to walk, a, a walk in His way. Look, I could go through many practical analogies. I could do that with these verses. You could. But the writer of Hebrews, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Hebrews, this is where we want to end today. He's looking at the book of Hebrews. Does the work for us. He applies it for us. The external proof of God's love for you and your relationship with the Father is, second proof is discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 3. We're just going to walk through the text and we'll be done. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Christ is who we're talking about. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What does he quote? Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't cast it off. Don't treat it like a little thing. Don't ignore it, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, what is the explanation of this discipline? Verse 7. It's for discipline that you have, have to endure. So, number one, discipline causes endurance. Discipline causes endurance. We've all been there, right? We've been disciplined in our lives, or we are disciplining in our children. And part of what we're teaching them is to continue in the way we're we're bringing them up. So we get creative with discipline. Um, we, we're having a little technical issue at home not long ago. Our children are great children. But uh, they were just having a tough time in the mornings surrounding getting ready for school. They're looking at each other now. Uh-oh. Dad's talking about us. I told my kids early on, this whole thing about be careful what you tell them, pull bit, it, throw that all out. I'm going to talk about you. It's, it's okay. So we're having problems with the way our house was running in the morning. Dad's gone early. I'm not there. Mom's trying to get everybody ready. 
What do we sign, Noah? What's on the refrigerator? A contract. Now he's embarrassed. He's not going to say. A contract. Sign a contract with your kids? Absolutely. And they read it. And it's from the Scripture. And it deals with everything I expect out of them every morning. And they sign their little names to it. On that contract is the exact punishment that they will receive for breaking the contract. The first time there's a consequence. The second time the consequence is longer and steeper. The third time the consequence is almost unbearable for an eight-year-old and it's intended to be that way. We didn't put four. Okay? We, 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 we hope we never get to three. It involves months without technology. That's, that's not a good thing at our house. Okay? The problem was addressed directly with their knowledge and the disciplines applied for endurance. They will have to live through the consequences of that, which will bring them hopefully into subjection again at the end of the process. But it's not overnight. It's not quick. It doesn't happen, it's over. It's not light and momentary. It sometimes feels like a lifetime. Discipline causes endurance. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Remember I said a proof of the gospel is the second proof, discipline. If you're not receiving it, you are an illegitimate child. You do not belong to the Father in heaven. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So his reasoning is if earthly dads can discipline their children and bring about respect, they cannot God in heaven who is perfect and a good father, a perfect father, a sinless father, can he not discipline us and also bring about respect? Absolutely he can. It's just logical, see. For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. I tell my children all the time, I am not perfect. I will discipline you when you should not be disciplined. When I catch that mistake, when that mistake is made known to me, I will hopefully, under the Spirit of the Lord, repent. One time I was disciplining Anna Grace, and she said, Daddy, when you're done with this, you're going to remember that you're out of line, and you're going to say you're sorry, and I'm not going to forgive you. It's in that moment that you just had to kind of, I wanted to laugh, you know. Here we're in this serious moment. And, and, and then not in that case, I did not repent. Okay, I was, I was right. But I have been wrong. Right? I have been wrong. I have disciplined my children in wrong ways. And I have had to sit before them and repent. So if I can discipline my children, and I'm a failure, I don't always do it right. I don't always do it with the best of intention. I don't perfectly apply it every day, consistently. If I can do it and still get the result of respect and honor and love and a, and a godly young person, cannot God who is perfect do it? Again, he's offering, the writer of Hebrews is offering us the exposition of our text. Sure he can, is the answer expected. They disciplined us for a short time, as best it seemed to them, but, their dis- but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
Peter says it this way, Be holy as God in heaven is holy. How does God bring about that holiness? Through discipline. Through discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Some of you are facing the discipline of the Lord right now. Some of you right now are in horrendous situations. And you know they're not just coincidental. They're happening because of your sin. And you know that it's God chastening you. And it is painful. I'm not trying to make it funny nor laugh at your pain. There are those of you who have lost relationships which you think will never be made right. There are those of you who have lost jobs because of your sin. There are those of you who are in, sh- in shams of marriages, marriages that are falling apart because you refused and God continued to turn the heat up to get your attention. I never will forget counseling with a man in our community who's not a member of our church. Then he was telling me, the first time I looked at internet pornography, I knew what I did was wrong and God would not be pleased. But I went back again and again. And then I almost got caught. And then I did get caught. And every time I clicked on that image, every time I looked at what I knew I shouldn't, in my heart, in my mind, I'd heard God saying, don't do it. My conscience was saying, don't do it. And I wouldn't listen. And God, who loves me, refused to let my sin stay in the dark. He brought it into the light. That's what John 3 says he does. He exposes our sin and brings it into the light. I've sat with those who had their affairs exposed by what seemed to be comical, coincidental instances. And they come to realize God loves me. And the pain I feel in this broken, lost relationship is only momentary, as painful as it is. And what I'm receiving from God is eternal. And so we, we see this. We see it playing out in the writer to Hebrews explanation of our text. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Don't you hate the statement, parents, please don't use this. This spanking is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. That's not true. That's a lie. It's not your bum that's getting the whipping. It's theirs. It hurts worse in the moment for them. Right? It's painful. It is not pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul says, no one inherits the kingdom of God unless they are righteous. And the discipline of God provides for us practical righteousness. Not that gets us into the kingdom, but that proves we are members of the kingdom. If you stand before the Lord one day with any work that does not burn in the fire, He produced it through His discipline. He produced it through His discipline of you. If you get anything right in this life, it was because God loved you and helped you by disciplining you to accomplish whatever it is for His glory. You don't do that on your own. I don't care how kind and nice you are. But that's not all that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Look at verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. 
Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one sees the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. He's given us positive after positive after positive reinforcement of the truth of our passage, but he's about to give us the negative. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he, desi- when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He wasn't a member of the family of God. So when Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, God did not discipline him. Has it ever dawned on you that in Genesis, the record of Esau is the record of a man who has great wealth, great heritage, and a great nation of people? And you think, he sold God for a bowl of soup, and he's got all this? He never received the discipline of the Lord. Not in this life. He's a man that was so wealthy as a sinner that when his brother sent him all these gifts, it was basically the best of everything Jacob had. What did he say? Jacob, don't give me all your things, man. I got so much. Just keep your little piddling stuff. I don't want it. That's how much he outnumbered Jacob. Jacob walked with a limp his entire adult life because he wrestled with God and faced the discipline of his deceit. But he entered the kingdom of heaven with that limp. The discipline was painful for the moment, but he brought, he brought, it brought forth the righteousness with which he could see God. So Christian, this message has been all about you. I made no apology about that. I want to talk to the family of God. If you're a child of God today, there are some very practical ways in which you may be experiencing the hand of God in discipline. I'm calling you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you, like the writer of Proverbs and Hebrews, that you submit to the treasure of Christ and that you forego your sin, that you come back to Him. He's not disciplining you because he hates you. He's disciplining you because he loves you. God made sure that discipline would never disappear from the earth. One way he did that was through the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a very clear place for discipline. Discipline can be between one to one. So, I offend Carlton Brown. So Carlton Brown comes to me. And he says to me, this is how you have hurt me. That, that in itself is a kindness from God. He is allowing me to see my sin and repent. Carlton comes to me humbly and says, you've broken relationship with me. This is how you've done it. And I disregard him. That's just like disregarding the discipline of God. Throwing it to the side. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's a light thing. He then brings witnesses. And they... Bring my sin before me. I disregard it. Continue on in my way. What happens next? It comes before the whole church. My sin made public for the whole church to pray over, to call me to repentance. If I disregard that, what happens? I am removed from the church. Removed from the local fellowship. No longer able to take part in the blessing of the protection of God's church. Why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 
Because God judges everyone outside the church. As long as he's inside the church, you're responsible for him. But when you put him outside the church, he then becomes God's direct responsibility. Say, Carl, that's so first century. I'm over that, man. We live in a loving, kind society. We shouldn't do things like this anymore. It's outdated. I had a conversation with a man through email just a few months ago who six years ago broke fellowship with this congregation. Moved almost across the country. Left his family. It's a sad case. The church here loved him, reached out to him, begged and pleaded with him, but in the end he would not turn. He sent me an email. And he said, I still, I'm still not willing to come back and face that. But thank you for loving my family. Thank you for accepting my children. I've lost a bunch of weight. I've been in and out of another marriage. I still have no peace with God. But thank you. Thank Grace Fellowship for me. That they were willing to discipline me. Sometimes the discipline of the Lord is painful. Sometimes it hurts. It all the time hurts. Sometimes in very real, hard ways. But it is right because it shows it's the mark of a family. It's the mark of love. So, my encouragement practically of application. If you have an offense, and you're here this morning, against anyone else in this congregation, you may think it's the smallest thing. It's so insignificant. I don't need to even worry about it. But the fact is, you are worrying about it. The fact is, it's happened on not one occasion, but several occasions. And you're holding it against the members of this church, whoever they may be. I'm encouraging you, over the next week, over the next two weeks, go to that person humbly. Chances are they don't know they've offended you. Chances are they have no clue there's any problem. Go to them. Out of love, out of respect, out of honor to this passage, and tell them the offense. And let the gospel of Jesus Christ bring you together. Be quick to forgive. And be quick to offer forgiveness. Okay? But do that. Do that. We'll see this passage practically work if we're willing to do that. Over some of the smallest things, you may be bringing that person back into real relationship. They may have been wandering. And that one repentance, that one act of repentance may break the dam of resistance. And they may come running back, flooding back in to the Lord. If you deny it, then you deny God the opportunity to work in your life and their life. So, I told you the book of Proverbs is going to be hard-hitting and very practical. This is one practical way we can live out the truth that we're learning. God disciplines everyone he loves. And so, if we will be like God, we will discipline those that we love, out of love, in relationship as exemplary of his love for us. When my children are old, I hope they don't remember me as their friend, but I want them to remember me rather as a father. When I'm dead and gone, my hope is their tribute to me will be he loved us as God does. He disciplined us. He hugged us. He kissed us. He provided for us. He laughed with us. He cried with us. And yes, he made us cry sometimes. The fact is, he did 
extend God's love to us. So the gospel has two outward proofs. One, your giving. Two, his discipline. Let's pray. Father.